Good evening. It is good to see each of you. And if you're visiting, we are so thankful that you're here. If you would be opening your Bibles to Ephesians, the third chapter. Ephesians, the third chapter. And in your pew Bible, if you uh, don't have your Bible with you, take one from the pew there and it'll be 1,039 in the Bible in your pew. We are thankful to Jamie Harper for the tremendous uh, leadership weekend that he put together for us on Friday evening and Saturday. Uh, Dr. Eldridge did a great job, and it was a wonderful, wonderful time, uh, a blessing for all of us, and we are thankful to him and the good work that he did in that. We're thankful for Miss Gloria Farrell and so many of the women that helped with the quilting. I understand that four quilts have been delivered. They're made by hand. They're made with love, and, uh, and they have been delivered to uh, the Tennessee Children's Home in Spring Hill, Tennessee. And, you know, I, I think about that, and I think about almost every night I take a quilt that my grandmother made me in the 70s, and, uh, and I put it either over uh, my bed in, in the wintertime and, and use it and, and think fondly of uh, the warmth that it brings, but also the love that was made in that. And it's great to think that there are children that have been neglected or abused, and that they're going to know that there's someone that loved them and that cared for them enough to make a quilt for them. And, and we're thankful for those ladies and, and the good word that they speak for Jesus by their works. Uh, do keep in mind, if you are in touch uh, with the life of this congregation, you know very well that we have had about as many losses in a short period of time as, as we've had in, in I don't know how long. Uh, we have a lot of families that have been touched with losses in the last week or two. Be sure and take a bulletin. Be sure and jot yourself notes when you hear of those that have had losses. And let's make sure that we all, this week, reach out to someone that's hurting. We have a lot of families that have losses. Uh, reach out with either a phone call or a card or, or find some way that you can help. But let's make sure that we all do something. And definitely, let's all pray uh, for those that are hurting at this time. While you're praying... Be sure and pray for 2008. If the Lord wills time, we need to do a lot of good for God's glory. We need to grow as individuals. We need to grow spiritually. We need to grow closer to God. Uh, we need to grow in the way that God wants us to serve. Be thinking about uh, yourself. Be thinking about us as a church family. And please be prayerful. There are a lot of plans being made right now. Uh, from, from those that are working on the staff. Also, the elders have been making so many plans. I know uh, various deacons are making plans. Uh, classroom teachers are making plans of things they're going to teach. A lot of plans are being made right now. Let's pray that God's blessing will be on all those plans. We only want to go where God wants us to go. We want to go where He leads, but we want to do that with the best of our ability and with great faith. And let's make sure we're prayerful about that. If, if we can do it without God, we don't need to be involved in it. Let's make sure that we're giving our all and that we have to have God's blessing for us to succeed. As we think about the book of Ephesians, we've been looking at our heritage and our life in Jesus Christ. In the first half of the book of Ephesians, we're thinking about especially our life as we live our life in Christ. There are many blessings. There's a great inheritance to have if we live our life in Christ. Tonight, we will look at the third chapter, which kind of is the dividing point there, the way we'll break down the book. And then the last half of the book, uh, which is in the future, we will look at when Christ is living in us, the life that that produces. 
As we think about tonight's lesson, I want to take you back in your mind to the Rosetta Stone. You'll remember probably hearing and studying about this stone. This is a stone that was discovered in 1799, and it was created in 196 B.C. It literally stands about 45 inches high, about 28 inches wide, about 11 inches thick, and weighs nearing 1,700 pounds. It's considered one of the greatest Egyptian artifacts that's ever been discovered because before the discovery of this, we could not read hieroglyphics. But you see, when this stone was discovered, and you can almost tell by the picture there, it was written in three different languages. One was hieroglyphics. One was another ancient Egypt language. But the third was classic Greek. And so in 1821 or 22, there was a French scholar that was able to decipher the hieroglyphics because he knew the Greek. Now from that, that opened all kind of doors of understanding of other Egyptian artifacts. And because of that, we oftentimes have a metaphor where when something that was unknown has been used to make something known, we speak of it as a type of Rosetta Stone. Do you realize that in Ephesians, the third chapter, that is almost the way Paul is using writings by inspiration to say it's a Rosetta Stone. It's something that the people before us didn't understand. They didn't know it. And if it would not have been for inspired writings, we still would not know this to this day. Now, you've probably heard enough sermons to know that it's kind of hard to preach a whole chapter in one lesson. So we're only going to bring out some highlights and we're not going to stay here all night either. I want you to think about where we're going because that always makes us be able to work a little bit quicker through text when we know where we're going. First, we're going to establish the fact that what is inspiration as recorded here in Ephesians 3. And once we do, we're going to see how that inspired message, that type of Rosetta Stone, how it affected Paul's life, how he refers to the fact it ought to affect the church, and then finally, how it literally affected his prayer that he prayed on behalf of the church. So let's look at this as we begin in Ephesians, the third chapter. Notice verse 1 and 2, and then you will see 3, 4, and 5 on the screen. Uh, But I hope you have your Bible open because we'll glance at a lot of phrases and passages that aren't on the screen either. But notice what is said here about inspired writings. As we read verse 1 and 2, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles... Now note the fact that he was in prison when he wrote this, but he says, for you Gentiles. Now, if you were not here last Sunday night, or if you need to be reminded what we covered, remember at the last half of Ephesians, the second chapter, the great plea was to bring together the Jews and the Gentiles and his and God's, actually, refusal to create a Jewish church and a Gentile church. The two must become one. He spoke of one body and the same body. And so now what he's going to do is carry over to a degree that same fact But he's going to emphasize it now by the writings, by inspiration. And so he's talking here especially for you Gentiles. And then he says in 2, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. There's been something given to Paul for him to tell to them. Now notice how this is described in 3, 4, and 5. How that by revelation, key here, how that by revelation... He made known to me or to Paul the mystery. The word mystery here simply means that that was unknown, that is now known, that he made... uh, Lost my place. 
Get my eyes back in focus, okay. That made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already by which when you read, notice Paul briefly wrote it, when you read it, you may understand my, you may understand Paul's knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Let's pause there at that colon. Paul says there are some things that in previous dispensations simply has not been made known to mankind. But Paul said by revelation, in other words, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit that it has been made known to him. Now, how many of us have thought, wow, it would be really neat to be an apostle and have an inspired message running through your mind. I'd like to be able to know what the apostles know. Did you see there what Paul said? Paul said, when you read what I wrote, you know my knowledge. Friends, the great revelation here is that we know what was inspired and revealed to the apostles because they wrote it down and we read what they wrote and we have that great knowledge. Here, he's giving great credence. He's giving great value to the New Testament. Now, have you thought about how many of us just in the last day or two have bought a Bible? Hundreds of us have bought a Bible, and many of you will pick it up tonight on the way out. What if we said Sunday, we want everybody to bring every Bible you own to church? Do you realize how many thousands of Bibles would be here? It'd be more than's on the lost and found table. Now, we have so many Bibles that we sometimes probably take for granted the fact that we are holding an inspired message. Maybe it's easy for us to take for granted the New Testament. And you know what Paul is doing here as he writes the book of Ephesians? He's writing to a healthy church. And it stands out significant to me that as he writes to this healthy church, he's literally making a plea here to say, appreciate the New Testament. Remember where it came from. Remember some of the things that it's supposed to accomplish. And the reason I say that is because in this chapter, he only goes over a few of the things the New Testament is to accomplish. Friends, if we ever lose sight of how important it is to hear God's Word, to love and to obey God's Word, we miss out on one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. Now, what is this Word to accomplish? Notice at the end of 5, it was revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Now, how did this affect this This Rosetta Stone, if you will. This New Testament where God was revealing some things to man now that previous generations did not have. How did it affect Paul? Notice as you read verse 6 and 7. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel of which... I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, which given to me by the effective working of His power. Now, if you were here this morning, remember he talked about the fact that Paul was always thankful to be in ministry, and he would give thanks for it. That's what he's doing again here. He's saying it's by the grace of God that I've been allowed to be a minister. But it's also interesting to note here, when he talks about this inspired message, The inspired message was to inform mankind of something they did not previously know. What was it? They need to know that the Jew and the Gentile are to be joint heirs. 
They are to be partakers both of the grace of God. They are to both be in the same body. Previous dispensation did not have that revealed to them as clear as it is revealed in the new covenant. And Paul said, that literally became my ministry. Do you see there in verse 7, of which I became a minister? Have you ever heard the expression, practice what you preach? Do you realize Paul here is saying something more to the extent that Paul lived what God revealed? Can I say that? God's revealed a message. Do I live the message that God revealed? Now, if you think where Paul came from, you see a tremendous change in his life once he understood the revelation of Jesus Christ. What do we mean by that? Paul was an Orthodox Jew. He spent his life being very much opposed to Gentiles. As a matter of fact, it's said that many of the Jews would pray daily. The Jewish men would pray daily, Lord, I thank Thee that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And what did Paul do? He became a Christian following the revealed message of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. And he began ministering to Gentiles, to slaves, and to women. Acts the 11th chapter is one of the first times we see Paul in, if you will, a located work. And you remember it was in Antioch. And that was a church that was full of Gentiles. When we go to Acts the 15th chapter, it's the gathering, the conference, where there was a great, great trouble stirring. Do you remember who stirred that trouble? There were Jews saying that the only way a Gentile could come to, to Jesus was that they first would have to come through Judaism. They would first have to be circumcised. Then they could become a Christian. And it was Paul and Barnabas that created no small dissension. And they said, we're going to have to take this to Jerusalem and resolve it. In Romans, we see Paul collecting from the Gentile churches relief fund that would be delivered to the church in Jerusalem. In Galatians, we see Paul, whenever Peter was eating with Gentiles and other Jews came, James and others, he separated himself and Paul rebukes him openly in front of others because he accused Peter of trying to build back the barrier that Jesus had come to destroy. Now that's just enough. That's four examples there. That's enough to prove what could include many, many more examples where you say, Paul, God revealed to you the message that Gentiles and Jews were to be one in Jesus Christ. Did you change your life because of the revealed message? And his life would prove it over and over and over. Yes, I changed my life to obey that revealed message. Many of us will read through the Bible in 2008. That's wonderful. But what I really need to ask myself is, do I have any plans of changing my life in 2008? to grow closer to the revealed message that I will read. Friends, there's, re there's really no reason to read through the Bible next year if you don't have any intentions of conforming your life to those words. Let's look at the second thing of how it affected the church. In verse 8, we're going to kind of especially pull out 
And uh, let's go to the next slide, and you'll see an example here of what we're looking for. In verse 9, we're going to pull out an example of the fellowship of the mystery. In verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God and how both of these tie back to the church. Uh, look with me, if you will, and if you have your Bibles open, we're going to be reading in verse 8. Paul says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Now think how awesome that is for those Jews that thought they were of greater importance than the Gentiles. And Paul says, Okay, I'm a Jew, but I'm a Christian. But I'm also one that's humble enough to realize I'm less important than any other Christian on the earth. And you can imagine the Jews would have been saying, oh no, you're not less important than a Gentile. They're the lowest. And he says, no. He says, I'm the least. What humility Paul has. And he says, this grace was given me that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now notice, this is to the Gentiles. He's saying, that's what my ministry is about. Notice verse 9. And to make all see... What is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Let's especially highlight verse 9 where he says, His task is in revealing this message. His ministry to the Gentiles is to reveal the fact that the fellowship of the mystery should be revealed. This was unknown in the past, but now it is revealed. Jews and Gentiles should be in fellowship with each other. And the word fellowship means partnership, to share in. Now, not to re-preach last Sunday night's lesson, but just be reminded what this means is we are to share with each other and it doesn't matter if we're white collar or blue collar. It doesn't matter what nationality. It doesn't matter uh, what our background might be. It, it does not matter. If we are coming to Jesus Christ, our fellowship is based on the fact that we have all come to Jesus. If we're going to be a part of the Lord's church, the fellowship is based on the fact that we all are a part of the Lord's church. That kind of unity must exist. There cannot be the idea that, well, we'll just have different churches for different people. And, and so it is when we come to 10, the intent is in verse 10 that the manifold wisdom of God, that means the variety, the various wisdom of God. Have you ever thought how deep God's wisdom is? The great knowledge of God? What about this? How's this to be revealed? Notice he says, might be made known by the church. Now, wait a minute. It's talking, God, uh, Paul here is talking about this great wisdom that ought to be made known by the church, but what is that great wisdom that ought to be known? Friends, for two chapters now, the great wisdom is that we can come together as one. Are we letting that be known? What if someone is a babe in Christ? Do they feel at one with the church family here at Mount Julia? What if someone is extremely rich or extremely poor? Friends, we're not, as the church, allowing the manifest wisdom of God to be known if we're not showing the unity that God designed. Now with that in mind, let's read the prayer that he prayed, which is a beautiful prayer. 
but how it even ties back to Revelation because when we go to verse 14, and let's look at the next slide. Notice this prayer. We have it broken down here uh, in, in really four ways as we see his posture and prayer, his petition, and then the power, but also how that power also relates to the church in those very same last two verses. But in verse 14, I hope you have your Bibles open. Notice how he begins this prayer by saying, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in the heaven and earth is named. Wait a minute. Why did he begin by saying, for this reason? I can't fully appreciate the context of this prayer if I don't tie it back the same way Paul tied it back. When Paul said, for this reason... He had almost now for two chapters discussed how the Jew and the Gentile should be one. How the revealed message of the New Testament reveals that the Jew and the Gentile should be one. How Paul said, I've given my ministry to fulfilling the fact that the Jew and the Gentile should be one. The church ought to prove by the way it lives, the manifest wisdom of God, that the Jew and the Gentile should be one. And then he says, for this reason, and I say this prayer. Now... Notice the posture. Someone says, what is the right posture of prayer? There's nowhere in the scriptures where we're told what the posture must be. But what we see is always, the posture is always humble. A humble heart is required in prayer. Humility that says, I can't do it alone. I need you. Humility that says, I recognize the blessings in my life aren't from me. They're from you. The humility that says, I'd like to help others, but they need more help than what I can offer on my own. So God, I ask you to help others also. Humility is definitely a requirement in godly prayers. And here we see the humility and the posture that he goes to his knees. He bows to his knees. And what is his prayer for these people. As we read 16, 17, 18, and 19, and, and those four verses, I want you to note, if you will, there's so much more than what we can pull out, but will you please note with me how he wanted strength from the inner person. That strength had to be tied back to a heart where Christ dwelt by faith and that it was rooted in love. And then we're going to see how it refers to the great love of God and how his prayer was that they would know that. Let's, let's notice this and make a few comments as we go here in verse 16. Here's his prayer for them. Because of what he's been talking about, the unity of the Jew and the Gentile, he says this prayer, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Pause just a minute. How many of us would say to a group of individuals that were struggling to have maybe the unity that they ought to have, how many of us would say, well, let's just talk about the inner person? I'm not saying that would never come to our mind, but isn't it interesting that he doesn't spend a lot of time in this prayer talking about their outward actions? Why? You know, if our heart is right and our faith is right, the outer actions take care of themselves. So he prays here for the strength of their inner person. He prays for their faith that begins in the inner person. And he prays for the love that begins in the inner person, knowing that if those things are right in these people, the rest is going to take care of itself. And so as we go into verse 17, still talking about the inner person, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
Christ in our hearts through faith. Where did faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So we have Christ dwelling in us. We have his revealed message dwelling in us. Notice this, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now let's pause right here for just a moment. Lord, what do you want the inner person to be? He says, I want it to be a place that the Spirit of God can dwell that will strengthen the inner man. I want that inner man to have Christ living within them. I want the inner man to have faith living within them. And I want all of this to be on the foundation, rooted and grounded in love. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 13th chapter, the great love chapter of the Bible? The first three verses give example of things that are wonderful, but each time he closes those three verses by saying, but if you do not have love, it is nothing you remember in verse 2, he talks about we can have all knowledge, we can have all faith, faith that can move mountains. And then he closes that by saying, but if you do not have love, it's nothing. Here, Paul establishes the fact in Ephesians, we have to start out this godly living by having love. Friends, the truth without love is a dangerous sword. The truth without love is a dangerous sword. What kind of love do we need to have in place? Notice the next verse. This is so rich. We're, we're not even touching the hem of the garment of this passage tonight. Look, look, if you will, in verse 18. He's talking about love, and this is what he said. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. If we're going to be rooted and grounded in love, he says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in God's love, in Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. How great is God's love? The length of it is so long that it's been going forever. It's been going from generation to generation and it'll go on into eternity. What is the height of God's love? The height of God's love has windows in heaven that just continually pour down more blessings than what we deserve. What is the depths of God's love? The depths of God's love has given us so much wisdom, so much knowledge. All that we would ever need to know, God has given us that. What is the breadth of God's love? God's love encompasses all that have ever lived. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He told the apostles and us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Friends, do I know that kind of love? Do I know a love that is never-ending, that's so deep with wisdom? Do I know a love that's so overflowing with gifts and blessings? Do I know a love for all mankind? When I begin to comprehend a love like that, which is God's love, I'm then ready to have a platform within me to build a life of faith. Now notice this final point. And and notice on the screen here we have both of these verses, 20 and 21, beside see the power and see the church. Notice this in 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, that's exceeding the the limits, exceeding the boundaries. It's, It's just more than you'd expect. Abundantly, that's overflowing. The quality is better than we thought. The quantity is more than we thought. Above all, more than we would ever think. Above all, that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. 
Who's able to do that? The God whose love is so deep and whose love is so long and it's so wide and it's so high. That same God that has that type of love is the same God that if you and I will allow Him to dwell in our life, He can accomplish more in our life, exceedingly more, abundantly more, above all that we could ask or think. Friends, you and I, if we're living a faithful Christian life, just do not know what the seeds could produce that's taking place in our life right now. I know you've heard me say this before, but can you imagine the first small group that over a hundred years ago met on this very same property? Can you imagine if you said to them a hundred years ago, let me tell you the mission work that's going to take place from the life of this congregation in Mount Juliet. And they would have probably said, oh, there's no way that could happen. What if we told them back over 100 years ago approximately how many would be baptized a year here from this community? Oh, that could never happen. Friends, pulling from this morning's theme, if you and I would just continue and never quit, finish, We're coupling with a power, the Almighty God, that is doing more than we can ever imagine. He'll allow us to see some of that on this earth, I do believe. But the greater good, we'll probably have to wait to eternity to see it. How does this affect the church? Notice verse 21. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and amen. All the good... The exceeding, the abundant, above all, all the good that takes place because we're living our life with the love of the Lord in us, Christ dwelling in us, the Spirit dwelling in us, all of this, notice, it's for the glory of the church. This morning when I mentioned to you, let's all give some time every week. Why do we need to do that? Friends, the church needs to always be known for good works. If you have the opportunity to do something good in your own name or you have the opportunity to do something good in the name of the church, by all means, give the glory to the church. God has always accomplished tremendous things on this earth. His greatest vehicle of intent at this time, I believe, is through the church. I believe that's what's being implied here. Great things, far beyond our imagination, but allow the church to receive the glory. What's the church? The church is the body of Christ. So we close with this thought. If we read the scriptures through in 2008, if we read the scriptures that we read tonight, will we live what has been revealed to us? You know, that's really one of the greatest compliments of an honest heart is when someone says, I've never seen that before, but now that I've learned God's will, I want to obey that. Tonight, 
You may not have ever become a Christian before, but now you're ready with an honest heart to commit your life to God. Won't you do that tonight? Are you a believer willing to repent of sins and confess before men and be baptized in Christ for the mission of your sins? Maybe you've been baptized in Christ and along the way you've lost the way. Will you come back to what the Lord has revealed? It's the truth. Let's make sure that we leave here tonight not only loving the truth, but living the truth. If you need to confess sins and pray forgiveness, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.